They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've met hundreds of wrestlers. They own thousands of DVDs and have watched millions of hours of wrestling. They are Prime Time Pause and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am Chad, and as always, I am joined by my tag team partner, primetime John Paz. John, how are you? I'm doing pretty good, Chad. How are you doing? A very appropriate woo this evening. I'm doing just fine as we welcome our guest, the manager of the Four Horsemen, Mr. James J. Dillon. But before... We talk about the interview and the part one of a two-part J.J. Dillon series. We're going to discuss a quick little giveaway that we have to see the kind of strength that the two-man power trip of wrestling has these days. And we are giving away a copy of Wrestling for My Life, the new book by Shawn Michaels, Mr. WrestleMania, just in time for WrestleMania season. So between this J.J. Dillon episode airing Tuesday and our next episode Tuesday, so there will be a Tuesday and a Thursday. So by the next Tuesday, anybody who follows us between now and then on Twitter, at Rasslin, the Rasslin Pal, or at Two Man Power Trip, pick which one you want to follow. Follow both, but you will randomly be selected as the winner for Wrestling for My Life by Shawn Michaels. Primetime. What are your thoughts on the Shawn Michaels book before we move into J.J. Dillon? It's a pretty good book. It's very uh, insightful by the Heartbreak Kid. It is a second book. It was very nice of HarperCollins to send us um, some copies of the book, and it's, it's our pleasure to give back to the fans and give one out. Oh, yeah, the loyal two-man power trip of wrestling listeners with whom we care for and love so very much. So follow either at the Wrestling Pal or at Two Man Power Trip on Twitter, and you will be eligible for a book from Shawn Michaels. So kind of segueing into somebody who loved the Four Horsemen growing up in Shawn Michaels, we had J.J. Dillon join us. And if you like a long form, completely detailed, from beginning to end of the career interview, this is it. J.J. covers himself as a fan all the way through his retirement, and what a story. I got to say, that was unbelievable to be able to get to talk to the former manager of the Four Horsemen, J.J. Dillon. I mean, we went from start to finish. We got to talk to him you know, for a pretty lengthy amount of time. Obviously, it's why it's a two-part of the episodes of the show, so it was just uh, really, really exciting for especially me, I know you too, to be able to listen to a man who has so many good stories to tell. Yeah, without a doubt. And you'll have to excuse both JJ and myself because we were somewhat under the weather while we recorded this. So if you can get through both of us not sounding at uh, our peak, 
then you will still enjoy every story. I found some of the stuff that he was saying about the, the backstage WWF tenure of his uh, to be fascinating. The story of, oh my goodness, the story about his Madison Square Garden debut. I mean, try to pick one. Uh, that was actually, you know what, I will say that was my highlight. What was your highlight? I love getting into the WCW stuff with him. At, at a point, it's, it's very funny when we start talking about uh, Starcade 90, uh, 97 and uh, Eric Bischoff. But I think my Indeed. favorite story, um, I think I might have to go with his story about The Rock. I, it was just a great, great story, and it shows you how cool, I guess, yeah, I guess for lack of a better term, The Rock really is and uh, how in tune he is with respecting guys that I've respected him in the past. Really, really cool story. I completely agree. And please enjoy this. So remember, it's part one of two. And starting with this episode, between Tuesday's release and Thursday's release, to the next Tuesday's release, if you follow at The Wrestling Pal on Twitter or at Two Man Power Trip on Twitter, you are eligible to win the new Shawn Michaels book, courtesy of HarperCollins. Thank you very much. And that's all I got, Primetime. Anything left before we throw it to J.J.? If you're a true blue real wrestling fan, a real wrestling historian, you're going to want to hear from a legend like J.J. Dillon. <clears throat> With us on the line right now is one of our all-time favorite wrestling personalities and an absolute legend in the history of the pro wrestling business. He is a 2012 elect into the WWE Hall of Fame as part of the legendary Four Horsemen and is also a 2013 inductee into the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame. He has worn many hats in the wrestling business, including being a wrestler, a manager, a booker, and an executive. He is also the author of the highly praised wrestling book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, From McMahon to McMahon. Mr. James J. Dillon, welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Wow, that was a great introduction. I thank you. Oh, my pleasure, J.J. We have so much that we want to cover, and it's hard to pick a starting point. But in the interest of John and I both being Jersey guys, please, could you tell us about your early days growing up as a fan in Trenton, New Jersey? Well, I'm dating myself by telling you all this, but uh, my I go all the way back to uh, my parents having a, a black-and-white television, and I was born and raised in Trenton, so we kind of had the benefit of getting some television stations out of Philadelphia and out of New York at the same time. So we had uh, quite a choice. And I actually was a, a big baseball fan, a big Brooklyn Dodger fan. And it was the era where uh, the New York Yankees, the New York Giants, and the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, were all in that area. And, of course, the, uh, the three center fielders were Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, and Duke Snyder, and I was a huge Duke Snyder fan. And then when the Dodgers uh, up and left Brooklyn and went to L.A., uh, this was, of course, before Sports Center, and, and uh, I would get the paper in the morning, and the line score from the West Coast would be about the third inning, and that was it because of uh, the deadline, and so I kind of lost interest in baseball and discovered professional wrestling that was on live every Thursday night for an hour and a half from the Capitol Arena in Washington, D.C., and it was the era, this would have been mm, mid to probably 57, somewhere in there, 58, and it was the era of uh, Argentina Rocca 
and Carl von Hess and Chief Big Heart and Skull Murphy and Bruce Bernard, the Sheik, Bobo Brazil, uh, Haystacks Calhoun. I mean, it was some of the, the legends of, of the history of our business. And so for uh, a kid that was in high school, uh, these characters to me were just, wow, big, you know, just bigger than life. I mean, nowadays you could walk down, you don't even have to go to Times Square, you go to any city probably in America and, and see guys with bald heads and tattoos and blonde hair and what have you, and you wouldn't even glance twice. But uh, in that era, they were, um, I guess, bizarre. And then uh, a live event came to Trenton to the National Guard Armory, and uh, I went to the event, and now I'm seeing these same characters live and in color and the atmosphere in a live wrestling uh, arena. And I remember Argentina Rocca faced Carl von Hess, and uh, all the other stars were on the card, and, and I, I was hooked. You know, some people want to be cowboys or whatever and and i decided at that moment that that was my dream that's what i wanted to do was someday become a professional wrestler and is that uh is your is your love and knowing what you wanted to do uh from such a young age is that what led you to becoming the president of the johnny valentine fan club well that was part of it uh and at the time uh i didn't really understand all the the intricacies and the nuances of the businesses uh, of the business, and I just knew that there was something special about Johnny Valentine, who was uh, part of that era, and he just he wasn't flamboyant. He wasn't like the sheik that came out and just you know struck fear into people that they would run from him, and there just was something about him that he got more out of just a glance or a stare. And I think that philosophy carried through my career where later on as a manager I had a had a philosophy of, you know, less is more, that uh, it's, it's better to do not so much but do what you do and do it well and do it at the right time. So uh, that was part of my part of my growth was uh, – being the president of Johnny Valentine Fan Club, and then I met another old-timer who was the original Zebra Kid, George Bolas, who was a great amateur and traveled the world, and I corresponded with him and, and asked him for advice. And this was, you know, he didn't have wrestling schools back in those days. It was very hard to, uh, you know, get your foot in the door because most of the old-timers didn't want to help a young guy break into the business because they looked at you as someone, well, why should I help you? If you come in and are a success, uh, you you might take my place and I'm out. So uh, they would tend to discourage you more than encourage you. And, but George Bolas gave me some good advice uh, that I still pass that along even to this day when I'm asked by young hopefuls, uh, and that advice was twofold. One was, first and foremost, get your education. Uh, he told me, go to college, get a degree, and the wrestling business can be very tough. Um, not everybody makes it. Uh, there are a lot of risks involved, and if you have a college degree, even if you just stick that diploma in your back pocket, it's always there. It's yours, and they can never take it away from you. Right. And then the other thing was he suggested I, you know, uh, you know, learn the fundamentals of amateur wrestling. 
And he said, those fundamentals will help you be a better professional. And he was right on, on on both points. And that's, again, the advice that I give young people today. Now, a few weeks ago, I was at um, the Jim Ross signing and had the honor of meeting you. And there was a few um, Q&A questions from the crowd directed towards you. And one of them was absolutely shocking to me. He asked you if... Um, when I can't even believe that people don't know this, but he asked you if you ever took a bump before, and he he didn't know that you were a wrestler, and also you were at, at you know for a long period of time you're also a referee. So just curious if you could just talk about your wrestling career a little bit, and you know how you got started. Yeah, well, like I say, it was my dream to be a wrestler, and and there was no easy path in. Uh, I I I did uh, wrestle in college, graduated with a, a degree with a major in sociology, but my goal. Was still to become a wrestler, but uh, got married a month out of college, and my daughter was born, and all of a sudden, I, you know, my path that seemed uh, so focused now was, you know, was much more complicated. And I became close friends with uh, Hans Mortier, who was in the area at the time, and he was uh, very successful here, successful in Canada, and was huge in Europe. And he said, you know, he had more connections in Europe that he would uh, try to help me get a start over there. But, you know, I eventually uh, just hanging around, doing whatever. And you can learn a lot by just watching and observing. And they used to do a a weekly television show in Philadelphia to promote their big shows once once a month at the old Philadelphia Arena. And the TV was shot in the basement of the NBC studios on Market Street. And I was I went to college in Reading, Pennsylvania, and the guy who took the ring out of storage would drive down from Reading, get the ring out of storage, and, and make sure everything was right. And then uh, I, w- I would ride down with him, and we'd each put a plain white T-shirt on, and he'd take the jacket from one side, and I'd take it from the other. And it was like a, a very mini theater. The ring was on the stage, and if you said that it, seated a hundred people all together I wouldn't you know I would yeah that that might be right but anyway they had a snowstorm that came through we we would get there early and the snowstorm hit and uh Pennsylvania is a commission state the the referees are assigned by the athletic commission and enough wrestlers were there to actually tape the one hour show but none of the referees showed up and I had been around and a familiar face and Everybody said, well, we need a referee. Is there who could referee? And they all, I just kind of gravitated to me. And can you referee? And I just shook my head, yes. I'd never, ever refereed. And they got me a shirt. And I remember my, they didn't really tell me a whole lot other than, uh, you know, work the three sides of the ring and do not walk between the camera and the action. They didn't want to see my butt for the whole time that I was out there. So I refereed for an hour and, and just instinctively as a fan, you know, knew what to do and and did a good job. And, and they said, geez, you know, we, we we should get you on the staff somehow. And that's how I got on the staff and eventually did so for almost uh, eight years and refereed a lot of Bruno Sammartino's major championship matches with uh, Killer Kowalski and the Sheik and Professor Tanaka and Gorilla Monsoon and Baron Cicluna and George Animal Steel. And I actually, without formal training other than I had played judo and knew how to fall and protect myself, 
I learned more just being the third man in the ring that was like really right on top of the action and being able to see what the participants did and the reaction of the people and uh it was a great learning experience and then the sheet came through to, for a series of matches with San Martino and just casual conversation in, in the dressing room told him that my dream had really been to become a wrestler and he told me he promoted in Ohio and Michigan and he said come on out and you can work for me and I wasn't sure what he meant you know if he wanted me to come as a referee and he said, no, bring your tights, and he said, we'll see what you could do. And that's how I got my foot in the door as a, as a wrestler after being a referee, and I did that. I just I did it for a weekend to start with and and, and did an acceptable job and, and came back a year later where I had a whole week's vacation planned, and I was then booked in on the, on the towns for whatever tour they had for that week and then eventually went out there and... Um, the Sheik was, uh, you know, told me he says his business was a little slow, and he said I've got guys that I can't book you full time. There's guys feeding their families. You have a job, and let, you know we'll wait and see what the future holds. So, I ended up wrestling part time on the weekend because I was living close to Pittsburgh and had known Bruno, and so I ended up wrestling every weekend around Pittsburgh for Bruno San Martino and some dates for the Sheik, and met a guy named Jim Grabmeyer who was from Springfield, Ohio, that would come home every winter and wrestle, uh, you know, around Ohio and and Michigan and western Pennsylvania. And then in the summer, he would go down to uh, the Carolinas and Crockett Promotions because they would expand their roster and run a lot of outdoor shows. And he left, and when he went, he took one of my pictures, and I just got a call out of the blue. And he said, well, you said this was always your dream, and I've shown him your picture, and based on my word, they need talent, and they'll book you. And I thought, wow. <laughs> so on the spur of the moment, I packed everything I owned in an old beat-up Chevy and had never been below Richmond, Virginia, I think, in my whole life. And drove straight through to Charlotte and got there uh, uh, on a Saturday or Sunday, stayed at the YMCA where you could stay for 15 bucks a night. And Monday night I was in Park Center for my first match for Jim Crockett Promotions, and I wrestled Gene Anderson. And apparently... Uh, passed the test of uh he was out there i guess to see you know what i had to offer and i remember the referee came back because we were on opposite sides of the building the referee came in and just kind of nodded and said hey kid uh you did good and that was great and and i wasn't really a kid i was 28 years old months from my 29th birthday and so i really started late but i was finally after all those years uh living my dream how many years did you wrestle, and how many matches did you wrestle? Uh, my whole career, because the first five years I was a full-time wrestler. I wrestled, I stayed there in the Carolinas for uh, a little over two years, and they, I was basically teamed a lot with Les Thatcher. I, I had tremendous help. I always said that the, in, to make it in the wrestling business, you have to have a passion for it. You have to love love it. Uh, if you told somebody that you went somewhere and worked TV for fifteen dollars, you know, even back in the seventies, you know, they would say, "Ah, oh, you're crazy." Um, but if you loved it and you had to have some talent, and I was never the biggest or the best, uh, but nobody wanted it more than I did, or was you know willing to persevere and, and accept the the bumps and, and the disappointments, and then you need help. 
and because I was a little bit older and was smart enough to like, keep my mouth shut to people like Johnny Weaver and Art Nelson and Sandy Scott and Les Thatcher was another in particular uh, that that really helped me. And so I had a lot of opportunities. I, I teamed with one of the Kentuckians, Big Boy Brown, uh, for a while, big man, small man. And Johnny Weaver eventually got me a shot against uh, and again I'm coming from New York where to me when you said world champion the only thing I knew about wrestling was what was in New York uh you know big shows every third week fourth week uh you know the garden would run like every third week huge population centers and to me Bruno Sammartino was was the champion and I I still uh am close friends with Bruno after all these years. I've known him for for over 50 years since he first came to this country. And and I'm often asked, you know, who is the greatest champion of all? And that's, you know, it's impossible to answer because you're comparing apples and oranges. But certainly in, in consideration would have to be Bruno Sammartino. But when I got to Charlotte, I found out about this, something called the National Wrestling Alliance. And at that point, uh, you know, I knew the history of Luthez and Kineski, and I knew the familiar with the names, but Dory Funk Jr. was the world champion. And my first territory uh, there about a year and a half, uh, I got a shot at the NWA world title against uh, Dory Funk in Norfolk, Virginia. So I'm oh, wow. very, very proud of that. And then uh, I went from there to the Canadian Maritimes. I went to Amarillo for a year, which was two trips to Japan. And then I went to Florida. Um, Eddie Graham probably had more influence on me than anybody, and I remember going to Madison Square Garden, seeing Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham. And, and Jerry was always the colorful, flamboyant, outgoing person. And here, come to find out that you know the the secret of the success was behind him, the quiet one, and that was Eddie Graham. And uh, he had such an influence on the careers of so many people. And um, so I, all in all, between the first five years where I was a full-time professional wrestler and then uh, I had met Archie Goldie, the stomper, up in the Canadian Maritimes, and then when I got to Florida, he was there and left Florida with Bearcat Wright to go to Tennessee, and that was like oil and water. It didn't work out with Bearcat as his manager, and all of a sudden I got a call out of the blue, and he said, have you ever given any thought to manage And I said, no, not really. Um, and again, I like I say, I was never blessed with a Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, Superstar Graham, Lex Luger type of body. And then, to be honest with you, I hated to go to the gym, and I was <laughs> tall and looked looked bigger in the ring than uh, I, you know I might have been two twenty five and looked looked uh, you know looked fine in the ring. But my strongest suit and the thing that I worked the hardest on was my interviews. So it was a natural transition for me, and uh, the stopper told me that he had to leave Tennessee and that he had a chance to go to Dallas in a main event spot, needed a manager, and and I made the decision to to, to go and work for Fritz von Erich. Uh, Red Bastien was uh, doing the creative at the time and uh, opened a whole new door for me. So I, I continued to manage wrestle some there were a period of time where i didn't wrestle much and then of course like with the horseman i i wrestled uh 
you know, a lot of matches with them. But at the end of my career, which spanned 20 years active between wrestling managing, I think I had over 3,200 professional wrestling matches, which, like you say, surprises a lot of people because they look at me as a leader of the Four Horsemen, which is really just a snapshot of my career. Yeah, it's definitely just a snapshot, and it's actually quite funny because there's a couple different directions I want to take everything that you just said. But I'm just going to start with the last thing, and that is one of the first exposures that I had to you and in, in seeing clips was actually uh, at a, a Madison Square Garden event in 1984, I guess towards the tail end of your actual wrestling career, but you battled Tito Santana in Madison Square Garden. And uh, could you talk us talk to us about uh, that actual match and how that came about? Because you weren't in the WWF at that point, and that was in the WWF's boom period, uh, right after all the hoopla surrounding Hulkamania. But could you tell us what it was like getting into the WWF for that shot in '84? Well, I had also. Uh, like I say, discovered the National Wrestling Alliance, and subsequent to Dory Funk, the Harley Race was the champion. Jack Briscoe was the champion. So um, uh, later, uh, after that, uh, in 1974, which was a couple years after uh, wrestling Dory Funk, I actually wrestled uh, Jack Briscoe for the NWA World Title uh, when I was in um, in West Texas in Odessa. So. I had two world title matches, which to me means a lot because in those days the, the title meant something. It not only meant something to the fans, but it meant something to the guys in the dressing room too. The guys who were the world champions, uh, you know, the, the Harley races of the world, uh, Ric Flair, Dusty Rhodes, Terry Funk, uh, um, Jack Briscoe, uh, they were the elite. And so... You know, it was an honor just to be chosen to be a challenger. But um, I, when I first started, my you know my initial thing was just to get in, get my foot in the door. And then at that point, I kind of took a an assessment of where I was, and I thought, well, you know, if if I'm going to be regarded as having been not only in the business but having some credibility and a degree of success, there were three things that I thought were important. Number one was all of the greats went to Japan and toured. So when I went to Amarillo, I got my first two tours, and I think I made six or seven tours of Japan, staying as long as six weeks. Um, And that was wrestling for Giant Baba and met the Destroyer there, Jumbo Taruta, and so... That was kind of on my bucket list uh, of, of having gone to Japan. And the other was to go to Australia. And even though it wasn't in the glory years that Jim Barnett enjoyed, uh, in 1979, I had a chance with Brute Bernard to go to Australia, and I stayed there for a year. And so that was another thing. I, I went to Australia, uh, was doing the creative, and made side trips to New Zealand, which was another beautiful place. And I really loved Australia. It was a great place. But the third thing really was, you know, if you ask any wrestling fan and you just say one word, the God, and Mm -hmm. you don't have to say anything more than that, they know exactly what you're talking about. Because there is a Maple Leaf Gardens. There was Maple Leaf Gardens uh, in Toronto. There was a uh, Cincinnati Gardens. 
I think there's a Madison Square Garden in Arizona. But when you say the garden, the the every wrestling fan knows you're talking about Madison Square Garden. And they may have bigger, fancier arenas, but that was the, the place of, of prestige. And guys who uh, wanted to make a name for themselves or people who were supportive of them to make a name for themselves um, would would get guys booked in Madison Square Garden. In other words, like Anoki uh, would come, Baba would come. When the Von Era kids were trying to get established, they would work the garden. Um, it was... In other words, kind of a prestige thing that, you know, I worked Madison Square Garden. And I was working in the office in Florida, and like you say, it was kind of towards the end of my career. I was managing Jimmy Garvin, doing a little bit of wrestling, not very much. And as I said, Eddie Graham had such a tremendous influence on me. And any time that I could be around him, I just used to like to just listen and absorb. the. He had a seventh-grade education, but he was a professor emeritus in terms of psychology of our profession of of you know what a match should be and and everything involved with reading the crowd and what have you so he came in i had an office uh in this auditorium and he came in one day and sat down it was just him and i and i i used to treasure those those times and in the course of that conversation i you know i mentioned that you know it just seemed like the day before that I had gone to Madison Square Garden and seen, and seen Dr. Jerry Graham and Eddie Graham and, and, of course, saw them numerous times and at that point dreamed that, wow, someday wouldn't it be great if I could wrestle in Madison Square Garden. That would have, that would have been kind of the, the third thing on the bucket list and maybe the top thing. And I said, but here I am, you know, it's kind of late in my career, I'm more as a manager. And, and I remember Eddie looked at me and said, well, that really would have meant something to you, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah, 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 it would have. And didn't think anything more than that. Eddie left, got up and left. And uh, a day or so went by, and he came back into my office. And when he came in, he said, uh, you're booked in the next garden show, which was Monday, April 23rd, 1984. And he said, they're going to fly you up. You'll have one match in the garden and fly you back and you'll get to live your dream. And he, Eddie had called, uh, Vince senior, who at that point, uh, was terminally ill with lung cancer. It was a time of turmoil because, you know, Vince junior had kind of made his move to, take over the world and I guess Senior had kind of had all these alliances with all these old promoters and they were all saying to him you know can't you control this kid you know we always had the agreement you know and we don't step on each other's toes and I think Senior thought that somehow he maybe could you know halt this obsession that his son had with wanting to take over the world but as it turned out uh, you know we all know what happened after that, but it ended up, uh, it was Vince Sr., who you, who I had known as a referee. He would come every month to the big shows in Philadelphia, and he was always impeccably dressed. He would come. I remember he used to have like a small roll of like half dollars that he would, you know, ro- roll them in, in his hand, and I remember him always smoking, and he knew me by name, and it was always... Uh, you know, very polite to me, and 
And when Eddie called him, he remembered him, and he said he would be thrilled to, to do that for me. And so that's how I got booked uh, booked in the garden. And that night, uh, Vince, of course, Sr. wasn't there. Uh, he was down in Florida, and his health wasn't good. Junior was there. Uh, Jim Barnett was there. And uh, I have a uh, copy of the lineup for that night, which I later had framed with a picture with Tito Santana, who I wrestled. They moved me up in the card because they were taping for the Garden Network, and I was able to get a, a match with uh, Tito Santana where, if you know, he got a clean win in the ring. You know, it was good for Tito, who was Intercontinental Champion. And, right. And, but that night, uh, I, I since uh, had everybody that was on the card sign that thing and had it framed, and Amazes me because I look at the names that the main event that night was Sergeant Slaughter and the Iron Chief. Yeah. Greg the Hammer Valentine uh, against Bob Backlund. Uh, I substituted for one of the Samoans against Tito Santana in the Intercontinental title match. And there was a six man tag match with Roddy Piper, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, and Dr. D. David Schultz against uh, Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, and Ivan Putsky. And with all the untimely deaths that we've had, you know, in our business, every one of those guys was was still living to sign it and, and is still living today. So that's 84, 94, 04, 14, that's 31 years ago. But yeah. the thing is, I got to live my dream, and, and I, I called Senior to thank him, and he... Uh, just was, you know, said he was very happy to do it for me and glad that uh, that I could be on the card. And it was pointed out to me later on, which I didn't realize at the time, that the political favors of all the other promoters sending in, you know, the Ric Flairs of the world and people that they wanted to get exposure as being, quote-unquote, big stars in the business because they wrestled in the garden, it was pointed out to me that I was the last outside talent to get booked in the garden because after that it was open war and there was no one else ever booked from the outside to come in. Yeah, that's uh, very well said. And, and that card itself, I was going to mention some of those matches just in addition. And you, you nailed each one on the head, and you were right. It was That's a heck of a card to look back on 31 years later. But if we could actually just uh, kind of transition over to uh, just booking very quickly. Um, you booked in, in many territories. Uh, you booked in Kansas City. You booked in Florida. Do you, did you enjoy being the booker, or was that kind of a uh, an unneeded pressure spot at times? Well, it, I was interested in the creative side right from the very beginning, mainly because, like I say, I was 28 years old when I first started full-time. So, uh, you know, Father Time was uh, not kind to me in that I knew that, you know, I couldn't go on and wrestle forever, and the, the clock was ticking. So right from the get-go, I got everywhere that I went with all the regional territories. I got involved with who, whoever the promotion was, and, and it was interesting because the the promotions in those days were very diverse and as an example eddie graham in florida was great with credibility he groomed jack briscoe who had an outstanding uh, uh amateur record at the university of oklahoma just the way that gordon Soley called the matches like he was on wide world of sports 
Uh, and yet, if you went up to to Tennessee with uh, with you know Jerry Lawler and with uh, Jerry Jarrett, it was balls to the wall. I mean, it was about as wild and crazy as you could get. And yet, both of them were successful because they controlled the exposure to their product. In other words, the people in Florida that was wrestling with Jack Briscoe and Gordon Soley, and up in Tennessee, that was wrestling with the Jerry Lawler, and, and as wild as it got with uh, you know Lance Russell, and 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 there were others that were in between the Sheik up in uh, Michigan and Ohio was wild to a degree, certainly with uh, Fritz von Erich and and Paul Bosch used to have a lot of uh, wild and crazy matches, but each one, so there wasn't really a mold of this is what you have to do to be successful and profitable in wrestling and that changed later on because Vince McMahon had such phenomenal success that every time somebody else thought about getting in the wrestling business they thought that the uh, you know the the mold was what the WWF at that time slash WWE once they went public that this is what this is the model that you have to duplicate when in fact they were already there, and you were never going to do what they did better than they did. That what the business really was crying out for was an alternative product. But people who who are outside the business and investors and what have you uh, never really grasped that. So anyway, to answer your question, I got involved with creative right from the from the very beginning. So I was around really great minds uh, in in Texas to be around Dory and Terry Funk. And to me, Dory, Dory was a great ring general. Terry Funk, who, you know, people look at him and think he's crazy and maybe he is a little crazy, but he's crazy like a fox. And he always understood the curve of the business and where it was going ahead of everybody else. And there were times when I I didn't understand it and didn't see his logic only to to find, you know, as, as time passed that it, everything that he... Uh, predicted was going to happen did happen so he understood and then of course when I got to Florida with Eddie Graham and I booked in uh, Australia for a year and then I wanted to come to Florida and it was actually Eddie Graham that got me the job because there really wasn't anything in Florida at that point he got me the job in Kansas City and that was right at the beginning of cable television and it really changed the landscape of wrestling forever because when all of the individual promotions produced their own show, once uh, TBS had that show on every Saturday at 6:05 with you know with Wildfire Tommy Rich and Buzz Sawyer and then Thunderbolt Patterson and Ole Anderson and in the other territories that were used to seeing what was produced for that territory and they were mostly weekly shows and you'd be back in those same towns week after week and some guys would get burnt out in six months. I was lucky I could usually stay a year and then knew when it was time to get out before I was burnt out so that I could come back and have another run. But fans always were always craving for something new. You know, they want a new face. And they would ask the promoters, well, when are we going to see Tommy Rich? When are we going to see Bud Sawyer? And so that really, really was the beginning of the change that it was never going to be ever again like it was before. And, you know, Vince McMahon, I, 
you know, I don't agree with a lot of things that he's done, but then I have to say that all the territories that I worked, I was never in complete agreement with everything that every promoter wanted to do in their own territory. And that was one of the nice things about the wrestling business that I think Pat Patterson you know, said it best. He said, you know, you go into the ice cream shop, and he said, there's, you know, if you go into Basket Robins, there's 28 flavors. And he said, boy, you're looking. And he said, and if, if you like vanilla, that vanilla is good. If you like chocolate, that chocolate's good. So it's whatever, whatever your taste is. And, and, you know, they're all they're all good, and different people like different things. And the wrestling business is, is much the same. But Vince had a vision, and he liked the 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 big muscular look and and then you look at the history he's always pushed guys who had that mold he's big himself into fitness and and training i guess he was recently on the cover of one of these fitness magazines and he you know he's all uh you know really cut up for a man his age and a lot of times jerry jarrett came up there when vince was concerned with the trial of possibly doing time for uh, distribution of steroids and I was working in the office and and got Jerry Jarrett and Vince talking on the phone because to me Jerry Jarrett in, in Tennessee had done everything that Vince had done every aspect of the business been successful with it only in a much smaller scale so it ended up that uh, Vince brought him up there and one influence that he had was open Vince's eyes to have <laughs> excuse me um guys like Shawn Michaels or Bret Hart, Ooh, not that Bret Hart's not a, a big guy, but um and certainly back in those days a guy like Ray Mysterio never would have got a chance. <laughs> so uh but still Vince I think um you know has always kind of leaned towards the you know the the you know the Sid Vicious, the Ultimate Warrior. I mean you can look back all through the history and then even recently with uh you know with Bryant who who certainly didn't fit the mold of what you would think Vince would like but one of the unique things about wrestling is that you and creative no matter how brilliant you may think you are uh certain things that you just think oh wow can't miss don't happen and things that you just maybe like I'm going to put this guy over here kind of on the shelf for a little bit and until I get the right thing and all of a sudden whatever he's doing catches on fire and he's he's red hot the point being that the ultimate judge and jury are are the wrestling fans they're they're going to be the ones to tell you whether they like it or not because they're the ones that buy the tickets and if they don't buy tickets to come see it um you you don't you're you can be in real trouble Now, in wrestling, I mean, that is so true that you never know. You can write it down on paper, and you can script it, and and sometimes it doesn't work out the way you want it to, and sometimes you have something so organic, it just happens. Now, in the NWA, in your legendary career, the Four Horsemen, it just happened because it wasn't really originally supposed to, you know, come that way. You were managing Tully Blanchard. Can you talk about the beginnings of the Four Horsemen, you know, first managing Tully and then the beginnings of the Four Horsemen in the NWA? Well, when I first went there, uh, I like I had had a chance after F- Florida, I worked in the office, and one of the things that I learned, I mean, I thought I had 
good ideas, and I didn't really realize until you're actually in the trenches that a lot of the successful bookers, and I look at Dusty Rhodes, I look at Bill Watts, uh, just to name two, who had uh, success, Ole was another one, success as in-ring talent. So they had they were top guys who had that going for them when they came in, and most of them had kind of like a crew of guys who followed them around, knowing that if, if I go there, he knows what I can do, I know what he's capable of doing, and kind of like your team. And I never had that, and I realized that no matter how good the ideas are, if you don't have the the, the talent to work with. Um, and no matter how good you think your ideas are, you're, you're just not going to enjoy the level of success um, that, that, that you envision or want. So when I first went to Florida, I, I didn't have a lot of talent to work with, and there were some great people there. Uh, Don Jardine was one. Um, but there's just the depth was not there. And so Eddie, uh, after a while, had Dory and Terry come in, not – move in as they were going to do it together kind of uh you know over the phone so they asked eddie if because i had worked with them in amarillo if i could stay on and kind of be the foundation there in the office even though they were officially the new bookers and so i remained in the office and then dory and terry after a while uh you know that was a hard scenario to to do long term and then Dusty had a chance to come back, and when Dusty came in, Dusty asked if I would stay on with him. And I had a great run with, with him. Uh, and when I left there, I had an opportunity to go back to the Maritimes, like 10 years after I had got my break there, and go in there, which was another thing I thought someday I'd like to be a promoter or an owner, and I could have gone in there at, just ba- based on my name from 10 years before, not putting any money in, and... Again, uh, another eye-opener was you can have good talent, you can have a good television product that you produce, but it was at a time when the old, uh, when I had my run up there, the Cormiers had, were on network television, and Emil Dupre had moved in when they when they left and, and stopped promoting and took that time slot and was kind of entrenched with the television people. And so... When it came to coming in now with another promotion, it was right at the infancy of cable television up there. And it ended up, uh, I, I think to make peace, they offered a spot on the cable network. And it, it took a while before we realized that uh, there weren't enough people watching and, and I needed to get out. <coughs> so I called Dusty and I said, Dusty, it didn't work out. And I guess, again, it's like timing is everything. And Dusty said, well, you couldn't have called it a better time. I'm leaving Florida. I've made a deal with Jim Crockett. I'm going in to book it, and I want you there with me. And I said, well, I need to call Jimmy Crockett. He says, no, pack and head to Charlotte, and we'll, I'll get you, I'll get some kind of a deal for you. And so when I first went in there, I, again, wasn't part of the plan. I, I uh, managed uh, Buddy Landell. Uh, I managed the... Uh, Cowboy Ron Bass and Black Bart, the Long Riders, who were a great, not only great guys, but a great, great team. And then got involved with a scenario with uh, Tully Blanchard and Baby Doll, where I got Tully away, and Baby Doll ended up with uh, with Dusty. And then we were doing TBS 
and, and getting national exposure. And it was two hours every week, and it was live to tape. It wasn't like you would do segments and then, oh, and, you know, we would go in in the morning, and most of the times we had to get to the airport to either take a charter or another flight to go wrestle somewhere that night. So it was basically shot live to tape. And one week it was, you know, we were short for time to fill, and I don't even know who suggested it, but Flair was world champion. Ole and Arn were world tag team champions. Tully was national champion, and as you said, I was only wrestling, uh, managing Tully at the time. So they said, "Well, you guys got all the belts, all the bragging rights. You know, all of you just go out together." And then I went with him because I managed Tully, and everybody had their belts over their shoulder. And and as the mic went around, it was Arn that said, "You know, everybody at home, take a good look at your screen because." Never have so few wreak so much havoc on everybody else. You'd have to go back in history to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and he held up four fingers. And it was the fans who who picked up on that. And every time one of us went out after that, they were yelling, Four Horsemen, putting out, because it became an interactive thing where they were involved. And it was like three weeks later that Jimmy Crockett said, What's this Four Horsemen thing that I keep hearing about? I said, Well, Jimmy, I think. <laughs> I think you better pay attention because it's something that, uh, I don't know, it was nobody's brilliant idea to go do it, but it happened, and it's the fans. And as I said, when we were inducted in the WWE um, Hall of Fame, um, you know, there's no way in the world we ever could have known how big it would become and how long it would last. But it, to your point, again, it was just a spontaneous thing that the fans um, created and ran with, and, and it was certainly the pinnacle of my career. What was your favorite incarnation of the group? I think they're probably, I mean, safe to say, it's the greatest faction of all time, but what was your favorite incarnation? Yeah, I've been asked that question uh, many times, and I I always think that the original group is special with Ole. Uh, and, you know, and you could look at Flair kind of was the foundation, and his thing was, you know, the limousine ride and jet flying, kiss steel and son of a gun, and and, you know, even though I was a little bit older, you know, I could kind of, okay, fall under that umbrella with a little grin. And, and Tully certainly, you know, could go with that and Arn too. But, the, you know, Ole was the one that was kind of, you know, towards the end of his career. And he was the grumpy old man and didn't, you know, really didn't fit that image. And But we had a great run with Ole. And one of the things that we did was to take from chapters out of real life and Ole's son was a senior in high school and he was a good amateur and he was in some tournaments and Ole wanted some days off to, to go to see his son's matches and of course Tully on an interview said you know the horsemen are everything to Ole you know what is, what's more important you know the horsemen or your brat kid and of course Ole smacked him and um, then the announcers you know may all Tony Schiavone and David Crockett made it, oh, there's unrest of the horsemen, you know, this is, oh, oh, you know, they were, and towards the end of the two-hour show on TBS, you know, I came out and I said, whoa, stop right where you are, right there, let's just, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're blowing this thing way out of uh, uh, proportion to what, I mean, said the, these guys are great. They're like thoroughbred horses, you know. They run the Kentucky Derby, you know. They're high strung, and they and it takes a special person to be able to, to you know, keep them focused and to keep peace and they, and have them be their best. And and I said sometimes, um, you know, they, they 
So and I said I I can fix this. I said all he has to do is just come out here and just apologize, say I'm sorry, and then I'll I'll get it all smoothed over. And I know Oli's still in the business. So Oli uh, still in the building. So Oli, come on out. And it was near the end of the program. And of course, now there was this uh, uncomfortable delay where I'm out there waiting for Oli to come out, and he doesn't come out right away. And then, you know, Tony Schiavone and David Crockett are really enjoying that moment, and they're kind of, you know, grinning. I said, look. They said, well, we, you know, we're about out of time. I said, stop right here. You know, this show's not over. I got money. You know, the news can start late. You know, call Ted Turner. I'll buy the time we're staying on the air till Oli gets out of here. And about that time, out comes Oli. You know, and oh, it looked like the weight of the world was off my shoulders. Here's Oli. And I said, Oli, you know, I'm gonna, I could straighten this out. I said, all, you know, all you need to do is apologize, and I'll smooth everything. All everything is cool. And he said, oh, you want me to apologize? I said, yeah. Whack. He whacked me, and down I went. And then Tully came out of nowhere, blindsided him. And what made it so. Really great was they went off of the set. Here's furniture and people and curtains, and and then all of a sudden we're out of time and the credits and off the air. And it's like the fans said, "Wow, we saw something we weren't supposed to see." And so we got incredible mileage out of that. And then it accomplished two things: it got Oli out of the original Horseman, and he drew money. Same style of wrestling, same interviews, and now he was a fresh opponent across the ring. Dusty was always the catalyst, but now Ole was across the ring, and it was right when Luger had uh, had a problem with Bruiser Brody in Florida, and I guess uh, Eddie had talked to Jimmy and said, you know, this guy's got a great body, and we at that point were all established at the top of our career, so we were able to bring Luger in and kind of camouflage the fact that he was, you know, inexperienced. And we ended up getting a great run out of Luger, and then when we finally uh, dumped Luger and shocked the wrestling world when Barry Windham changed sides and joined us, uh, that's kind of a long-winded answer to say that Ole will always be the group with Ole will always be special to me because they were the original and. If that had not happened, it's kind of like dominoes. Maybe the other things would never have happened that followed it. But in terms of the bell-to-bell, what we were capable of doing in the ring, the group with Barry Windham, to me, I, I don't think there's anybody that could, could, could touch that. And when Ole, or when Tully and Arn left to go to New York to, to be managed by Bobby Heenan and became the Brainbusters, to me, that's when, even though the Horsemen continued in name and there were other people involved, to me, that's the the, the, the glory years of the Horsemen ended the day that Tully and Arn left. So, really, the two groups were the originals and then the group with uh, with Barry. So I, I can't really say which one is my favorite. Uh, they both are very special to me for, for, for different reasons. Now, you guys had... Uh, you guys had a legendary match called War Games. Can you talk about your experience in that match? Yeah, I wish you hadn't brought that up, Ian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I've seen the tape. The War Games was uh, an idea that Dusty had of you know putting the two rings together and putting a cage completely around both of them with a door at each end and a cage across the top and the first war games was at the Omni uh, in Atlanta on the 4th of July, and I did a TV match that aired that day leading up to it where I kind of made fun of the Road Warriors and 
And uh, in that match, uh, you know, which was basically, you know, very violent in a bloodbath, and and at the end I suffered the, the worst injury that I suffered through in my entire career. And I didn't break my shoulder. Probably have been better if I broke it, but I ended up uh, was up on animal's shoulder, and here's Hawk on the top rope, and I, you know, I got bad knees to start with, and I'm thinking, oh, this is not a place that I want to be. I need to get down, and, and so I'm trying to get down, and as powerful as animal was, and and, and Hawk is airborne that ended up I'm coming down towards the mat, looking like I'm going to land on my head, maybe break my neck, and tucked my head at the last second and just blew my shoulder out. But the the other side of it is that it kind of established what the war games are all about in terms of uh, um, the level of uh, you know how really violent they could be and and so I think we had all told maybe fourteen or something after that and they every one of them just did phenomenal business and I think the match the first one in the Omni. Uh, kind of set the tone, even though I was off six weeks after that as a result. I had a choice of, uh, you know, having surgery and having a pin put in there, or uh, I basically had, had a sling where I was immobilized for six weeks. And so every morning when I get up to shave and brush my teeth, I look in the mirror and there's that hump on my shoulder that will, I'll have for the rest of my life that reminds me every day of that first war game. So when they imploded the Omni, everybody else had a tear in their eye, and I was uh, having a champagne toast when they did that. They <laughs> say bye bye Omni. I'm sure you look at your, uh, you know, you look at that when you're shaving every day. I'm sure if I close my eyes every night, I'd just see Hawk coming at me with that arm extended and uh, just ready to see where the other side of that was going to land. Yeah, I have a hard time. I mean, the match is there on YouTube, and and. Uh, I, I, I there's a, a there was a video released the war games that has all of them in there so it's not like I've never looked at it but um I uh, I can't say that it's uh, you know on my list of things to watch that uh, you know that it's one that uh, that I want to watch and I, you know and I've done a lot of interviews and uh, I I just recently did one that's just been released where um Jim Cornette is doing a series about the different regional promotions, and I was picked to join him on the one for the Mid-Atlantic region, and we talked, and it ended up about three and a half hours because there was like an hour of footage that when Crockett Promotions closed, which I was not aware of, somebody called and said, well, after the people at TBS took everything and that there was a bunch of stuff left, and they threw it in the dumpster, and I don't know if Jim Cornette personally went down there or somebody went down and found all of these old tapes, which he had then converted to DVD. But there's like, uh, I don't know how many hours of, uh, and it's, it's, it's shot with natural crowd sound with no commentary. And, uh, about an hour of that has, uh, been edited into this last one. So of all of the videos, that I've done, and I've done a couple for kayfabe commentaries, but this is by far the one that I think is the one that I am most. Of course, anytime I can work with Jim Cornette, and of course, kayfabe commentaries has been very. They were leaders in that genre of always looking for something different that nobody else has done, and this one that's just been released uh, 
on the on the Mid Atlantic Territory is uh, I, I would call it a classic. So. Yeah, yeah, it's called.